come to preach on a Sunday. I've been with you on a couple of other occasions, but um, good to be with you. And it's good to have been getting to know some of your leadership groups. Uh, you've got a great bunch of people who um, oversee the work of the church here, and uh, I hope you're praying for them constantly, uh, particularly in this time of um, uh, pastoral vacancy. And as, the, uh, as everybody gets their acts together about uh, selecting whom to interview and all of that, uh, much prayer uh, is going to be very helpful, I think. I'm just going to say a few words about the, uh, the passage that is set for us. We've not read it yet, but we will be reading it. If you want to see the PowerPoint presentation that I prepared for the setting of the scene, you'll need to come to the 11 o'clock service. It's a bit cheekier than I thought you might be able to cope with. <laughs> I hope that whets your appetite, so it might be backed out. <laughs> Anyway, you've you've been working your way through Paul's letter to the Galatian churches over the past three weeks now, I think it is. Uh, But rather than covering every verse of the letter, uh, you've been kind of sampling it. So I don't know to what extent the whole message of this important letter has been covered Sunday by Sunday. But I would encourage you to read it through. And uh, the whole letter, preferably a single sitting, I think that is a very helpful thing to do uh, as you read these um, letters not just to Paul, but the other apostles as well. Uh, you get a bird's eye view of what the, the themes are and a uh, very helpful thing to do. But at this point in the letter, the point that we've reached today, Paul has reached some very important conclusions. So I've taken the liberty of extending the passage I was actually given uh, to preach from to cover the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, so you'll see what I mean when, when we have the reading. Next Sunday you'll be looking at chapter 5. Uh, beginning with my favorite verse, as it happens, Galatians 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Well, it is at the moment, anyway. Changes. And it's that theme of slavery that we need to grasp. Why? Because the world-changing conclusion that Paul... Uh, has reached is that our whole relationship with God is fundamentally different now that we are believers in Jesus. Under the Israelite law, the old covenant, the Israelites were in effect slaves. At least that's the way Paul puts it. But under the new covenant, they and we have been set free. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, you are no longer slaves but God's children. God's sons actually, uh, but more of that later. I'm sure previous preachers have covered some of this ground, but I think it bears repetition because it's so crucially important that we understand exactly where we stand in relation to God and his laws. Galatians was possibly the very first of Paul's letters to be written, or at least the earliest that was preserved by the churches uh, to which it was written. First Thessalonians is possibly the other contender, but Galatians really picks up from what we read about in Acts chapter 15 the Council of Jerusalem. The Christian church had not been in existence for very long before problems arose about whether Christians were supposed to observe the law that had been given to Israel through Moses, and specifically the rule of circumcision, although that actually predated the law. People forgot that. You have to remember that all of the first Christians were Jews, uh, so the Old Testament law was part and parcel of their culture as well as their faith. The trouble started when Gentiles began to believe in Jesus, particularly in Antioch in Syria. And I don't know about you, but that for me is very poignant. 
the Gentile church was born in Syria. And think of Syria today. And the question cropped up, do Gentile believers have to observe the law of Moses in order to be genuine disciples of Jesus? That's what the church council was all about in Acts chapter 15. And the conclusion they reached was no, they definitely don't have to observe all the laws of Moses. What we're talking about, of course, are all the religious rules about food, sacrifice, particularly circumcision, and so on. And let's be clear that so far as the Ten Commandments were concerned, they applied to everyone. Now, uh, there's an issue there, I suppose. Do Gentiles come under the covenant, Ten Commandments covenant? Nonetheless, um, you can see that as you read through the New Testament, uh, the Ten Commandments is there embedded in everything. It's God's standard. It was more about the cultural and ceremonial laws that the early church was debating, though. But the problem never, ever went away. Indeed, I I think it's still with us, although in a slightly different guise. And although Paul's letters, uh, and all through Paul's letters, it's a big, big issue. Galatians was his first stab at trying to solve the problem. And Romans, more towards the end of his career, uh, repeats many of the same issues as Galatians. Indeed, some people see Galatians as a kind of proto-Romans. And in every letter in between and those that followed Romans, it's there, the problem of what they called Judaizers, Jewish background believers who had not grasped the liberating power of the gospel that salvation is through faith and not through observing the law or any kind of rule. So we're going to be picking up on what Paul goes on to say a little bit later in the service and see how that affects quite dramatically how freedom from the law releases us into a totally new relationship with God. Every day of their lives... Jewish Orthodox men thanked God that they were not born Gentiles, they were not born slaves, they were not born women. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, for not having made me a slave. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe for not having made me a woman. And that prayer has been traced back to at least the 2nd century AD, as it, more or less as it stands, but it probably goes back much further than that, perhaps even to the 6th century BC, to uh, a, Greek, a similar Greek formula. So it's not at all unlikely that Paul himself would have been brought up to thank God each day that he was born a Jew and not a Gentile, a freeman and not a slave, a male and not female. And this prayer was never meant to disparage Gentiles or slaves or women, simply to mark the appreciation of the free Jew, the free Jewish man, that he was not disbarred or that he was permitted into a number of religious privileges where Gentiles, slaves and women were not permitted. It all to do with access to God in the temple worship, really. And the passage that was read to us, what did we hear? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And when you consider that in Paul's time, most Jewish men probably would have used that prayer or something like it. And that would include many of those who had become believers in Jesus, 
we can begin to realize just what a revolutionary and hugely significant statement Paul was making here. It cut right across a Jew's perception of his relationship with God as well as his relationship with the rest of humanity. Galatians was written, as I said earlier, to combat what to Paul was an extremely serious distortion of the Christian message. In chapter 1, verse 6, he calls it a different gospel. He even adds a curse. He anathematizes those who dared to proclaim this new corrupted gospel. So he is strenuously defending the true gospel, which he says was revealed from Jesus Christ himself, not just somebody's good idea. And the issue at stake, which I'm sure you've all cottoned on to by now as you've been looking at Galatians, is that Christ fulfilled the law of Moses. The Old Testament basis for the covenant uh, of God with his people Israel and in fulfilling it delivered all who put their trust in him from having to observe the law in order to win God's approval and acceptance. You don't get saved by obeying rules. You get saved by trusting in Jesus. But what was happening was that certain hardline Jewish background believers, and they were Christians, were doing the rounds, visiting churches that Paul and others had planted all around the Roman world of the day, and especially churches of Gentile believers, saying that you couldn't be a real Christian and your salvation wasn't valid unless you adopted Judaism with its circumcision, holy days, uh, food laws, and so on. And there were also issues about Jews and Gentiles not being able to associate or eat together and all sorts of cultural issues that simply got in the way of open Christian fellowship and which were catastrophically divisive in the church. I often feel uh, that even today many Christians are afraid of that kind of freedom uh, that the gospel brings. The deal for us now that Christ has been born and died under the law, as it says in chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, reminds us uh, yeah, that, sorry, that God has, God has given his spirit to every believer. Every believer has his spirit. And it's through that developing relationship, which is mediated by the Holy Spirit, that we begin to discover what pleases him. And the cream on the cake is that he gives us the power to live according to our growing understanding of how he wants us to live. All that's required of us is that we seriously want it to be. God calls us to be living sacrifices, wholly devoted to being and doing things his way. But what many of us would prefer is to know where we stand. You know what I mean? How much more comfortable we would feel if we knew whether or not we had transgressed a rule. That's why it's so relevant today. Whether we had sinned or not. So we love making little checklists for our lives. There's a little Pharisee trying to get out in many of us. We know we can't earn our salvation. I don't think that's usually a problem. It's a completely free gift. But what we do struggle with is God's new way of defining what sin is. Now we are Christians, the deal isn't, have I broken this or that rule? The deal is, have I given my Lord and Saviour pleasure today? Is he pleased with me? That's freedom in Christ. 
I don't know how you're reacting to what I'm saying, but the possibility that it doesn't sound quite right to you may be an indication that you haven't really grasped the amazing liberty we have in Christ. So the Christian life is all about our personal relationship with God, with Christ, with God, yeah, with God through Christ. Sorry. And Paul uses a first century illustration uh, to help us understand the transition from being under law to being under grace. He describes the position of a child in the family growing up into adulthood. Although the pattern in our culture is, is quite a bit different in some ways, the principle is the same. When a child is young, he or she has to be guided by rules. And it's through the hit and miss process of obedience and transgression and punishment too that we learn how our parents want us to live. As we mature, hopefully we grow beyond the need for rules of conduct because by a certain age it becomes ingrained in us. We know what pleases our parents. This is in a perfect world, of course my own experience of parenthood, and I expect yours too, uh, shows all too clearly that parents don't always get it right. But the principle is there. What happens in human families is that we become adult and share with our parents on an adult level eventually. We become friends. Same, I suggest, with us and God. He wants mature, grown-up people who can share their lives with him in a totally different way than was possible when we were toddlers, spiritual toddlers. But there's more. And this is where we need to look a little bit more carefully at what Paul actually says. In verse 26 of chapter 3, he says, or rather the Bible we're using today, the TNIV says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith worked it's only put one thing up that's good now this is where I need to be careful not to offend anyone here who is sensitive about gender issues a literal translation of this phrase is slightly different so in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith note the all and note the gender specific word sons And that reflects the underlying Greek text. The TNIV, today's New International Version that we're using, is one of those modern versions of the Bible that uses gender-inclusive language. So it talks about brothers and sisters, where the Greek text simply says brothers, for example. There are a number of similar versions around, but the TNIV is actually my version. It's it's my personal version of choice, actually. So I'm glad you use it here. I use it uh, at home. I know, and I know a number of other churches that use it too. It's an improvement on the New International Version, even apart from the gender-inclusive phraseology, because it has ironed out quite a number of other problems with the NIV text. And if you compare the two texts, the TNIV and the NIV, even of the passage we've read today, you'll see a number of differences, just nuances really, nothing earth-shattering, but just more accurate nuancing in the TNIV on the whole. Unfortunately, however, the TNIV does get itself into a bit of a muddle here. In every case, without exception, where the TNIV talks about children of God, especially in chapter 4, verse 7, I believe the text ought to read sons of God. Verse 6, as it stands, is correct. 
Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And then in verse 7, it reverts to children instead of sons. Where I think it should read, so you are no longer slaves, but God's sons. And since you are his sons, he has made you also his heirs. What difference does it make? Apart from offending the, uh, the gender-specific pundits. After all, in Romans 8 and 9, Paul uses another word, a non-gender-specific word, where he's saying exactly the same thing. For example, Romans 8, verse 17, now if we are children, and that's the non-gender-specific word, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Where Paul says child or children in many versions, in Galatians 4, 1 and 3, the TNIV gets it right by translating the word underage, juvenile, if you like, or minor, would do just as well. But for some reason here, Paul seems to be making a fine distinction by using a word that has to mean sons. And for those of you who are interested, this slide gives you the rundown on three words I'm talking about. Napios, huios, and technon. And that's all you'll get on that. I don't expect you to remember that. Some of you know it already. probably know it better than I do. Paul uses the word huios. That's the second one on the list. Uh, when he refers to God's children, or better, I think, God's sons. It's definitely masculine for a male object. The distinction he's making here, and this is crucially important for our understanding of what he's trying to say, is that we're not sons as opposed to daughters, but that we are sons as opposed to being slaves. That's the revolutionary thinking. And if we insist on living under the Israelite law, we are voluntarily making ourselves slaves, or under any law for that matter, in order to earn our salvation. And we will never learn to please God that way. And what's more, considering that in New, Testament cult, in New Testament cultures, and even in our own to some extent, women were second-class citizens, definitely. And to say that a female believer is a son of God emancipates her beyond belief. That's not to say that men are superior to women and that all Paul is doing is just elevating women to a higher status. That's not it. What he's doing is making men and women equal in God's eyes. You ladies, put yourselves in the position of a typical woman in, the fir- in a first century church and think about all the cultural inequality that weighs down upon you and then think about how such a woman might feel to be put on the same level as the men by the great apostle Paul, no less. Wouldn't that do something amazing for you? Hard for me to put myself in your shoes, but it seems to me that it would. We are all one, all one in Christ Jesus. And that's something to really celebrate. Some of that wonderful truth gets lost in our feminist afflicted culture today. I guess some women wouldn't want to be equated with men. They might think they're better anyway. But in a culture which the church had to adapt to, because like, just like today, it was the prevailing culture of society, to be told that you weren't inferior or unequal anymore must have been the most liberating thing a woman could possibly have heard, except that the practicality of life might not have borne that out. Don't you think so? 
And I realise this has profound implications for some of the debates that rage on in the wider church today. Well, we haven't got time for that, thankfully. Oh, it's gone too far. Personally, as a Baptist, I have bigger problems with church hierarchies uh, than I do with whether women should be allowed to be ministers or bishops. What's clear to me is that God's gifts, God both gifts and calls both men and women. And actually, I think the question we always overlook is whether a man should be allowed to be in sole charge of a church. And there's a hand grenade for you to chew on. But the point is this, as sons of God, we have equal access to God. His spirit fills us equally. Although I think that women are often better at enjoying that freedom and the gifts that the spirit brings. Notice that, men? Got a bit of catching up to do, some of us. We all enjoy the spirit of sonship. We call out Abba, Father, Dad. That's what the word means. And what's more, even more amazing and wonderful, we're all heirs of God, as Paul puts it in Galatians 4, 7. You are no longer, Ooh, what happened there? I think that's where I'm meant to be. You are no longer slaves, but God's sons. And since you are his sons, he has made you also heirs, sharing the glory of God, women and men in equal partnership, enjoying all the rights and privileges of sonship. No longer slaves. It's not a gender thing. In the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter whether we are born Gentiles, but thank God for that. Pretty well all of us would say. It doesn't matter if we were born into some sort of slavery. It doesn't matter if we are male or female. God makes no such distinctions, and neither should we. Paul says we are heirs. We have come into something that should completely blow our minds. What does it mean to be co-heirs with Christ? It's simply amazing beyond anything that I can imagine anyway. And that's you and me he's talking about. But these Gentile Galatians were being browbeaten into returning to their former slavery under the law of Moses. And Paul is incredulous and incredibly angry that they should turn back to what he calls those weak and miserable forces. Chapter 4, verse 9. And that's pretty strong language, I think you'll agree. My prayer, and I'm sure it was Paul's prayer too, is that all of us who trust Christ enter fully into the emancipation and freedom of this new relationship that God has brought us into. Our adoption, as Paul puts it in verse 5. Another interesting word, which I haven't got time to explain fully, but literally the Greek, which is translated adoption or adoption to sonship, means our instatement as sons. It's a compound word word that involves uh, that gender-specific word, huios, actually, uh, once again. In the Roman world of his time, adoption was all about the full rights that a son in a Roman family would enter into when he came of age. The word occurs only five times in the whole of the New Testament and all in Paul's letters, Romans, Galatians and Ephesians, where the context suggests that the adoption to which we are predestined is a present status now, but that it awaits its completion at the second coming. So we're growing into our adoption. Final thought about what it should mean for us to be God's sons. 
men and women alike. If I speak about the Son of God, whom do I mean? No-brainer. Jesus, of course. The answer is either God or Jesus, isn't it? It's Jesus this time. Yeah. What then could it mean if God calls us his sons? Praise be to his holy name. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing revolutionary thinking of Paul. And it's not just his idea, he's explaining the reality of what you, Lord Jesus, have brought us into now that we believe in you. And we just want to ponder that and seek to work it into the fabric of our lives. We want to know the reality day by day of living as sons of God with all that that means, walking with you through faith in Jesus, empowered and guided by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we worship you. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.